Well, I've seen it time and time again, whether it's in personal conversation, whether it's in discussions I've had with people online, whether it's friendly or hostile, people arguing some political position or making some moral claim, and to bolster their defense, they say, if Jesus were here today, he would believe as I do. Or if Jesus were here today, he would be for or against this one moral issue. In their passionate plea to prove their position as right, anything from same-sex marriage to the right to bear arms, people often appeal to Jesus as an authority in an attempt to strengthen their arguments. I've seen it many times. If Jesus were here today, He would attend a same-sex wedding. If Jesus were here today, He would support open borders. If Jesus were here today, He would want prayer returned to the public schools. If Jesus were here today, He would support capitalism. I've seen this appeal from liberals and conservatives, theists and atheists, the outwardly moral to the outwardly immoral. And what I've also found, what is usually the case, is that Scripture is not cited, and the genuine historical Jesus that we find in the Gospels is not really the one being named. Instead, it's usually an appeal to Jesus that only exists in their imagination. They think they know what Jesus is like, and therefore Jesus would probably agree with me on this. And this Jesus that they invoke is usually quite different than the one found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus opposed nearly every human institution and convention. Jesus did not teach the masses much of what they already believed. When He taught to the crowds, there were not people nodding in agreement, thinking, yes, yes, I've always believed that. Rather, Jesus stunned His audience time and time again, teaching what no man has ever taught. No one has ever said, blessed are you who are poor. Or rejoice when you are persecuted. Or if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. None of the teachers in the first century Israel or any century prior would have insinuated that thieves and hookers were closer to the kingdom of God than the religious elite in Israel. In fact, Jesus regularly offended people because He spoke the truth. He brought light into a world full of darkness. He did not bring light into an already enlightened humanity as if we just needed a little spiritual help. He brought the light which exposed evil in every place and most directly, the evil in our hearts. 
And most of these types today who are clamoring to have the Son of God on their side to bolster their position would not only find themselves not in agreement with Jesus on some moral issue, but they would undoubtedly join the throngs of people who resisted him. In Luke 16, Jesus just finished teaching on the subject of money and investing in the kingdom of God. We've seen that the last few sermons in Luke. A profound parable we saw that has a very poignant application. Jesus says, use the things that God has given you to make friends for yourself for eternity. Meaning, invest in building gospel relationships with the resources that you have in the time that you have so that they will have an enduring impact on your eternal future. Wonderful parable. Profound. Take that which perishes and use it to invest in that which never perishes. Who could argue with such a wonderful concept? Well, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly at this point, the resistance comes from the most religious people in the nation. Notice in verse 14, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. The King James Version says they derided him. The New American Standard says they were sneering at him. Several other translations say they were scoffing at him. It's a term of contempt. It's a term of disrespect. It's like, ugh, please. Are you even kidding me? That kind of reaction. Here was God incarnate unfolding the most profound spiritual truths about our relationship to God and money and the world and the future and how it can be used to provide for your everlasting joy. And the most holy men in Israel respond in ridicule. Now, I want you to realize something as we read through the Gospel, that it wasn't just the Pharisees who refused Him and His words. Jesus went against the conventional thinking of His day on virtually every subject. Jesus did not come and find Himself in agreement with 95% of the prevailing ideas of the first century. He just didn't. He didn't already teach enlightened crowds who understood these things. He overturned everything they understood to be true. Because they were based on the teachings of men and what he brought was the teaching from God. He was provocative. He was confrontational. And because of our sinful disposition, he was offensive to many. And so you don't just have this religious class that opposes Jesus. You don't just have a few thousand men among the multitudes of Israel who strongly stood against him. He was constantly facing opposition. Yes, it's true. 
We see throngs of people surrounding Him at this point in His ministry. It's true that multitudes came out to hear Him, so much so that the crowds were pressing in on Him. But it's also true that very few people followed after Him. Think about it. How many were truly His disciples? You don't have to answer out loud. Think in your mind. How many were truly His disciples? How many heard the message, believed in the one God sent, and followed after Christ into paradise? I wrote down a list here. Let's count the ones we know. Okay, there was a handful of true believers, which includes the 11 of the 12 apostles. We know that there was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There was Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, and Joseph of Arimathea. There were the other women who went to the tomb when Jesus was raised from the dead. There was an occasional person like the man blind from birth or the demoniac who were healed and became followers of Jesus. And maybe we could put together another short list with a few more. You get into the book of Acts and you have 120 in the upper room. Jesus had ascended into heaven and they are together and they are praying. 120. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he said there were approximately 500 who had seen the risen Christ. Okay? Out of how many in Israel? Half a million? Maybe more? How many tens of thousands of people saw the miracles? How many tens of thousands heard His teaching? And yet prior to Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out and there is a mass conversion of Jews all at once, the biggest number we have is 500? But really, it should not come as a surprise to us. Jesus' teaching was never popular. His teaching never encouraged people that they were on the right path. That they were, were heading in the right direction. Jesus never made people feel good about their condition. He never made them feel comfortable about how they live. He was always overturning and upending people's perception of God and the world and themselves. And it's not because Jesus is just some offensive person. It's because of us. <laughs> it's because of our sin. When the perfect comes, the imperfect despise it, resist it, reject it. And it's been said many times before, and I think it's 100% true, if Jesus Christ were to come on the earth again today, He would be crucified all over again by angry mobs. He wouldn't be lockstep with the far political left. He wouldn't be lockstep with Christless conservatism on the right. He would be no part of it because He is no part of this world. And we are told men love darkness rather than light. 
people do not love the truth, whether it's the first century or the 21st century. They do not want to be confronted in their sin. They do not want to be told that they must deny themselves. It was never a popular message and never will be in this present age. And so people invent a Jesus that they're comfortable with and they think that Jesus is on their side. This is why we spend a lot of time in the Scriptures because we want to discover the real Jesus. Now, when people ridicule His words, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, that should come as no shock to us. If you quote Jesus to your neighbor in a conversation and he rolls his eyes, you should not be surprised. If you post Scripture on social media, maybe something that's a little hard-hitting, and you are unfriended by some of the people you know, you should not be surprised. Here we have the most religious men in Israel, the spiritual leaders of the nation, not meditating on his profound insights into the kingdom. They're not soaking in his teaching and eager to discuss it among themselves. Their response to the wisdom of heaven is one of ridicule. They respond as if Jesus is just some clown who is blathering out nonsense. And so they scoff at Him. They've been listening to Him teach this parable. They heard Him say that you cannot serve God and money. And their response is ridicule. Now, why would that be something to scoff about? That's the last thing he said before we read our text is that he warns them about serving God and money. says you can't do it. And they scoff. Why? Well, for starters, the dominant cultural idea of the day was that prosperity was a sign of God's blessing. So just to bring you back into the first century so you can consider how they thought about things. They believed that if you are rich, it is evidence of God's favor upon your life. And here, Jesus has the audacity to call it unrighteous wealth. Verse 11. He says you cannot serve God and money. Verse 13. So to say one should give that money away for the sake of preparing for your eternal future would be like saying, give away the evidence that you have God's favor. Or give away that wonderful gift that God has given you because He loves you so much. Just give it away. It sounds foolish to that kind of mindset. In their thinking, they are the kingdom of God. Their wealth is evidence of God's favor. Their expensive clothing, the religious elite, the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. Their opulent temple that Herod had built upon, that the disciples were even so fascinated with how beautiful it was. It was all meant to communicate divine favor. 
They also believed, on the contrary to this, that if you are poor or you suffer, it's a sign of divine punishment. So your relationship to God was directly related to the level of prosperity or suffering you experience. And because of this distorted view, his teaching made no sense to these men. Perhaps add to this, the one teaching them is this carpenter from Nazareth who doesn't have any money of his own. He's telling us what to do with our money, and he doesn't even have any, and he's supposed to have God's favor. Foolishness, they thought. And so they scoff at him. You can see how this bad theology infected the minds of the people. If you remember in John chapter 9, I'll just read the first two verses. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, so if prosperity means God's favor and if suffering means God's displeasure, Jesus, there's a blind man over there. Who's, who's responsible for that? Was it his parents? His parents sinned somehow and the punishment on them was having a blind son. Or, as the Jews believed, a child could sin in the womb and be born and if they had some kind of Congenital defect, whatever it was, it was evidence that 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 child was cursed. So there was something that that child did in the womb that displeased God and he made him born blind. So the disciples ask him, which one? Which one is it, Lord? And he says, it's neither one of those things. This man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in him. In other words, God had a purpose for his blindness that had nothing to do with sin. They had no category for this. This was countercultural to the way that they thought. Consider in Mark 10:23 when Jesus has the encounter with the rich young ruler. What does Jesus say to that rich young man? how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Actually, he says that to his disciples after the rich young man goes away sad. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know what their response was? It says the disciples were amazed at his words. There weren't a couple of them thinking, yeah, I've always believed that. Why were they amazed? Because wealth was a sign of God's favor in their thinking. And here Jesus is saying it will be harder for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? It doesn't make any sense. And then a few verses later it says, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? If this rich guy who is opulent and wealthy, if he's not getting in, who's going to get in? 
So this obliterated their understanding of how God operates in the world. The rich had God's favor. The poor or the suffering were under a divine curse. And here Jesus comes and says the rich are actually the ones who are far from the kingdom. And they are like, what? Now, where did the Jews get these ideas from? That poverty is a sign of God's displeasure and that wealth is a sign of His favor. Where did they get these ideas from? Well, the Old Testament has a lot to say about blessings and cursings. In fact, if you want to keep your finger here in Luke, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. <clears throat> the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy is a re-giving of the law. So he is telling this new generation, he gives them the law again, and this is the end of this book, and he's going to tell them what's going to happen in the future based on how they live. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. He says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. And then drop down to verse 11. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. So those are some pretty radical blessings and promises for obedience. But then you get to the flip side of this, and if you go down to verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And it goes on and on and on. Four times as many verses are the curses versus the blessings. So, there were promises that obedience would bring blessing and that disobedience would bring cursing. But was this meant to be a universal principle that anyone who walked with God would never experience poverty, hardship, or suffering? And that those who were faithful would only have wealth and prosperity? Of course not. What do we find when we read the Old Testament? Many 
believers who loved the Lord were often met with profound suffering. Job comes to mind. Jesus, or, uh, God says there is none like him in all the earth. He was the most righteous dude on the planet. And Job suffered greatly. How about all the women in the chosen lineage who were unable to bear children? All the years of, of trials and tribulation of this promised line that is the, the lineage of the Messiah. All of the toil that they go through. All of the struggle. All of the heartache. How about Joseph in the Old Testament? Betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Falsely accused. Imprisoned for years. And what does it say? And God was with Joseph over and over again. How about the era of the kings? Do we not see the godliest people in Israel, namely the prophets, who are constantly suffering? Or on the flip side, don't the prophets and the Psalms often lament the prosperity of the wicked? Psalm 37, Psalm 73, both Psalms about, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Are there not many figures in the Old Testament we could point to who were evil and ungodly and they did not have a day of suffering in their life? So many of the kings of Israel who are described as wicked men were the wealthiest and most powerful people in the nation. Do you mean to say that King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, because of their great wealth, had divine favor? I, I mean, you start thinking about the Scriptures and the whole thing starts to unravel. So what do we make of Deuteronomy then? Well, these are blessings and cursings that were promised to the nation of Israel. If the nation was going to follow God, it would go well for them. If they would turn away from God, it was going to be a disaster for them. And so these are not meant to be applied individually, where if you see someone who's born with some deformity, ergo the curse of God is upon him. But that's what they thought. So you have a foundation for these Pharisaic beliefs in the Old Testament they would teach on these scriptures. They would have a misapplication uh, to people, any people who were in poverty. And so they looked at the world as you are either healthy and wealthy and you have God's favor or you are poor and suffering and you have God's anger. Now if this sense sounds familiar at all, we have the same heresy today. There are people on television who teach this same thing today. The health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. These charlatans who get on television and tell you if you are faithful with your giving and if you sow seeds into their ministry, God is going to pour out riches upon you. You're going to have more money than you know what to do with. You're going to have perfect health. And conversely, if you are poor or you have some kind of sickness in your life, well, you, 
probably have sin in your life and it's probably just a lack of faith. And so they lead people on to think that if they just keep giving money to their ministries, that God is going to have His blessing upon them and they are going to be among those obvious ones whose God has prospered, namely the rich and healthy. So these false teachers on television spend all of their days rehashing this old heresy about blessings and cursings to the unsuspecting and ignorant. And all the while they build their empires here on earth with their fancy cars and their private jets and their expensive homes. But it's all a lie. Clearly it's all a lie. I don't have this in my notes, but it just came to mind. I... I stayed home one Sunday from church when I was in seminary and I thought, I wonder what's on TV these days as far as Christian broadcasting on Sunday morning. And Creflo Dollar was on there. So I'm like, I'm going to listen to a Creflo Dollar sermon. His last name is Dollar. There's a big globe on the stage that turns, you know, the world. It's just, a, it's just such an ironic picture, ironic spiritual picture. And his sermon was about Jesus was rich. And he's speaking to this massively huge church and he says, does anyone here believe that Jesus was not rich? No one wants to raise their hand. He's walking around. Does anyone here believe that Jesus was poor? I just need one person. Anyone. Has anyone grown up being taught that Jesus was poor? And one young lady raises her hand. Okay. Let me prove to you that Jesus was rich. Where does he go? Does, G- does, does Treflo Dollar take us to the Gospels? No, he takes us to an obscure promise given to Abraham about blessing. And he says, see, Jesus was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, and therefore he must have been rich. Even though the very Gospels that give us the life of Jesus Christ appeal over and over again to the fact that he had nothing. He had no place to lay his head. He lived with a group of men and one guy carried the purse and he personally didn't carry any money of his own. It's, it's, it's so absurd. It's so ridiculous. It's so easy to disprove. And yet all of those people will go home thinking, Jesus was rich and God wants me to be rich. Now, there are wisdom principles associated with the blessings and the cursings, are there not? If you live a life that is in obedience to God, your life will be blessed. doesn't mean you're going to be rich. It just means you're going to have joy and you're going to be in God's will and it's going to go well for you. And if you turn your back on God and live in a way that is opposing God's will, it's not going to go well for you, generally speaking. So, there were false teachers in Jesus' day, there are false teachers today, and not much has changed in 2,000 years. In fact, Jesus, who can see the heart of man, look what we discover in verse 14. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So now, we're getting to the heart of the matter, literally. 
Why did they ridicule him? They have this Old Testament context of thinking as far as blessing and prosperity, yes. But Luke tells us because they were lovers of money. They loved money. They flaunted it before others as a sign of God's approval. And when Jesus starts teaching on what the kingdom of God says about money, they think it's foolishness and they scoff at him. What is money about in the kingdom of God? They think it's ridiculous. Note verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, Jesus reveals what's really going on here. Why did they scoff? Because Jesus said you're either serving God or you're serving money and you can't serve both. And here are these men who think they have money because they're serving God and they don't have a category for this. But Jesus exposes them as not serving God at all, but serving money. So, they put themselves on display. They show themselves as approved by God, being justified by men. And Jesus calls them on it that it is an abomination. And really, showing off is what they always did, the Pharisees. These men made it a point to put on a show everywhere they went in Israel. We've seen that in the Scriptures. They made the tassels really long on their expensive robes to show off how spiritual they were. They made a big deal of their giving and made sure everyone was aware of how much they were giving so that people would admire them. They made long flowing prayers in public so that people would hear them and say, oh, they are so spiritual. They contorted their faces when they were fasting so that people would know. And what we discover is they are not serving God. They are serving money. Now, it doesn't seem like being a Pharisee would be a very good career. I don't know. I, I don't know that much about it. But it seems like how are these people getting rich if they are the spiritual leaders of the nation? Well, the same way that these false teachers on TV are getting rich from unsuspecting and vulnerable people. Listen to Jesus' warning to his disciples about the Pharisees in Mark 12.40. You you know this verse. He says, They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They devour widows' houses. So here's a woman who is very vulnerable in the first century. Her husband's gone. Her possessions are no longer protected by her husband. The Pharisees come along and they manipulate her. And they persuade her. And their greed is driving them to try to 
acquire what she possesses. And they convince her to give up her house to their church. (laughs) They convince her to surrender the right to her possessions to give it to God. Give it to God. And then they recite these long, solemn prayers asking God's mercy and blessing upon her after they just took all of her things. And so, these shepherds in Israel who were given to protect the people actually become the wolves. And then they have the audacity to use that wealth to show off divine favor. Jesus exposes them for doing this and they hated Him for it. And if you spend enough time with Jesus, beloved, He is going to expose what is hidden in you. Guaranteed. Why don't people come to Jesus? Because He brings to light what is hidden in darkness. Back to the original point as we conclude. The people who argue that Jesus would have sided with them or Jesus would have believed this or that other hot-button topic today are usually referring to a Jesus who doesn't exist. When the real Jesus is present, He exposes our sin. But if you humble yourself, if you see how far you are from the kingdom of God, if you surrender and accept God's will for your life, if you see Jesus as a substitute given by God for you, if you're given God's Spirit, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can begin to believe and understand the mind of Christ and you can begin to agree with Jesus. And people will scoff as they will always scoff. They scoffed in his day at him. They will scoff in our day at you. Let them scoff and let us stand with the truth. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. We do thank you, Lord, that in him are all the treasures of wisdom. And Lord, that we do not need to get Jesus on our side for our particular idea, but we need to submit our will to His. Please help us in this day, Lord, that we would have a mind that is conformed to Yours and that we would glorify You in the time that we've been given. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.